So open your Bibles to 1 John 4, and uh, this won't be a you know, note-for-note, word-for-word exposition. We're just going to kind of hit the main point and just talk about it, uh, the application of that. But we're going to look at 1 John 4, verses 7 through 14. And like I said, it's, it's hard just doing one sermon like this, where you're right in the middle of a book without wanting to give you the, the whole context of the book and tell you, you know, where we're going. And, and I guess if, to try to do that very quickly... Um, and you may have studied First John before. If you haven't, or even if you had, the reminder is that John is writing this letter near the end of his life to Christians in Asia Minor, and he's, he's basically uh, writing this as a letter of assurance for them to examine their lives, their words, their actions, their thoughts, the way they treat others, and, and to have assurance of their faith, uh, to look at the way that the world treats them and things like that. Uh, really, the, the purpose statement of the book is in the next chapter, in 5.13. He says... These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to uh, believers. Uh, and then he gives the purpose. So that, this is why. So that you may know that you have eternal life. And so it's, it's, a, it's a great letter. This is one of those books of the Bible that we should read frequently. You know, always examining ourselves. Uh, for that assurance, as we, you know, examine, like I said, our words, our thoughts, our deeds. And, and, and then also uh, for our um, admonition, as we, you know, because we, we're going to fall short in this. And if you look at what John says through this whole letter, I mean, really, uh, the assurance of your faith is, is wrapped up in. And now, now, well, let me start with this. The assurance of your faith is wrapped up in the hands of God, which is awesome. I mean, it is God who writes our names in his book before the foundation of the world. It is God who plucks us out of the world system as we are born in this world and draws us to himself. It's his spirit that causes us to have conviction. It's his hands that he holds us in. He puts his spirit in us, seals us in him, and then holds us, and no one can snatch us out of his hands. So first and foremost, your assurance is found in, in, in Jesus Christ and in God the Father and the Holy Spirit within us. And that, I mean, that is the solid assurance of your faith. But being in him, we have times where we doubt. We doubt when we're walking and dabbling in sin. We doubt when we're separated from the church for a while, you know, when you're not involved in the body or serving actively in the body of Christ. You know, we doubt just sometimes because there's, there's seasons where we walk through in life where we just, maybe we're not in the word how we should be. Maybe it's just a, a trial or a, or a place of suffering that the Lord wants you to depend on him in a way that you haven't before. Doubt is going to come and those things are going to come. And when that happens, for those who believe, you know, what First John comes into play. Because what First John tells us is that we can know that we are believers in many different ways here. And one of the main things he talks about is love. Uh, believers love one another. Believers love the brethren. Believers love the body of Christ. We lay down our lives for one another. We give up our time and our well-being and our good for the good of others, to serve others. To, uh, and, and, we, and we do this because we love the Lord. Uh, he talks about um, knowing that we're believers because we submit to his word. We obey his commands. We uh, walk in righteousness like Christ is righteous. We practice righteousness. We do not love the world. And, and in fact, the world will, will, will hate us in the same way that it hated Christ. And so there's a lot of kind of tests of your faith if you look through it. I usually go through this once a year with uh, my students here at, at Cherokee Christian School. Well, I guess I don't anymore. I don't have that class this year. But up until this year. And we would go through basically 18 essentials of of faith. You know, what does it look like to be a believer? So, but if you look at this whole thing, and I remember Matt Lott teaching through this one time, and he was like, you know, when I look at First John, it's just like, it's just like love, 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 love. I mean, how do you, you know, it's just every time you're talking about love, and honestly, it, it is. I mean, it's uh, rooted and grounded in love. But the reason the letter's rooted and grounded in love is because as believers, we are rooted and grounded in love. 
Love is instilled in us with the Spirit. We're called to love others in the way that Christ loved. And we have to. God will cause it. And then we will desire it because that's what his children do. So, and I know that was just a real quick nutshell, but a little bit of context of what we're jumping into. So when we look at 1 John 4, 7 through 14, we're going to be looking at the love of God and we're going to be looking at the call of believers to, to love. And, uh, and like I said, this is something that, that has to permeate our entire life. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, the way we work, the way we raise our children, the way we treat our spouses, the way we uh, you know, do everything, the way we serve in the church. So let's read it together. And then, like I said, we'll, we'll jump in and we won't do a, a word-for-word exposition, but we'll get the big picture and then talk about what this looks like in our lives. So starting verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world." Really, if you look at this, you can, it, you can kind of easily divide it up into three things. You know, if you look at verses 7 and 8, you, you see that God is love. You have the Father, and you have the fact that, that that's his essence. He is love. After that, you see the manifestation of that love in Jesus Christ, that God manifests his love physically, tangibly, so that we could see and experience and know what the love of God looks like through Christ, his Son. And then he puts his Spirit within us, and I think that's the third part, That love will be manifest, therefore, through his children, because the Spirit of Christ resides within us. And that's the the, the kind of the act of love, the the action that comes behind the the theology. You have the theology, God is love, Christ came to manifest love, he puts his Spirit within you, and then therefore you will love. And that's kind of what this this is saying uh, quickly. So, why study love? What's the purpose of this? Well, I'll tell you why I did this with the college students, and I imagine you're going to resonate with me, because all sins come to man, we're all in the same place, and we're doing the same things. The reason we have to constantly look at what the love of God is and, and examine our lives is because we fail to love all the time. We, we profess his name, we claim to be believers, and, and, and Lord willing, all of us are. I mean, we, we love the Lord, we say, and, and we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know that he died for our sins, but we're so quick to fall away from love. And, uh, and the reason is, is because we're so quick to look out for our own interests and to worry about what other people think about it. I mean, that's just kind of common to man. Uh, that, that, that was the Pharisees' problem. If you go read in John, and again, we've been teaching through John in the college group, in John 12, one of the reasons the Pharisees always failed to recognize Jesus, and they always fought against Jesus. In John 12, it says, one of the first things is they were, they were self-focused. They were always focused on their selves, their good, their well-being. And, and because of that, whatever hindered what, was, what they wanted caused them to push back. And Christ came and did that. And so they were looking out for themselves, not for others, not for, not for you know, the love of Christ or anything else. And the second thing is they feared what man thought about them more than God. And, and you and I live in that every day. 
if we are not actively fighting against it. Naturally, that is what you will do when you wake up every morning. None of us wake up naturally and say, you know what, I'm going to lay down my life for others today, and I'm going to do everything for the glory of God. That's something you have to actively think of, actively pursue, actively practice. And, and, and if you're not, then you're automatically going to fall into the other category where you're going to be looking out for your best interests. You're going to be looking out for your well-being every day. You're going to be looking out for what you think, what you desire, what you want. And you're going to be worried about what other people think about you rather than what they think about Christ and God through you. Does that make sense? That's just where we're at. So I know you struggle with this because we all struggle with this. This is, this is where we are as believers. And so we have to study this consistently and remind ourselves of the love of God. In John 15, Jesus says to the disciples, who were walking with him for three years and just watching him manifest love consistently, especially this night. But he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. In other words, he's setting himself as the standard of the example and saying, love others like I have loved you. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, that you lay down your life for your friends. And he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And, uh, and, and so the, the call of Christ to the disciples that night is they were worried and distressed about what was coming their way, not understanding what he was about to do through the cross. He tells them, you must love, and you must love in the same way that I loved you, by laying down your life for one another. You know, one of the things we forget very easily, or we don't think about, or honestly, maybe we just have never, never opened the word and, and studied this, but you look around this room, and these people in this room, Born-again believers, if, if we have the Spirit of God, then the people in this room are closer to you than any blood relation will ever be. Do you understand that? If you have the Spirit of Jesus Christ in your heart, then you are united by an eternal bond, the Spirit of God. That's an everlasting union. And, and, and we are children of God. We have been adopted into the family of God. The people in this room should be and will be even if you don't do it in this life, they will be for all eternity, tighter and more closely unified than any blood relation that you will ever have on this planet. Even if you have a very close relationship with your mother, your children, or whoever it may be, and they're born again and all of that, blood relations end with death, right? I mean, they're only so long. 20, 30, 80, maybe 100 years, if you're, you know, <laughs> you got that in your genes. But, like, but, but, but this is temporary. Christ is eternal. And the family of God is eternal. And we must love one another in the way that Christ loved us. We must be expressing that love on Sunday mornings and during the week. This is our family. And we have to retrain our mind to see what is real. Because we think that the physical is more real and more tangible than the the spiritual. And it's just the complete opposite. What he decides is real is real. And, and the physical and spiritual world are wrapped up and we are united by the blood of Christ through the spirit of God that resides within our hearts. This is our family. We lay down our lives for one another. And we've got to practice that and retrain our mind to think that way because I guarantee you, most of us did not wake up that way and come to church th- that way this morning. You know, We used to come to church like, oh, I can't wait to be fed. If you just came to be fed, you're, you're a parasite. You're feeding off of the service and the sacrifice of others. Now, again, I'm not saying it's bad to be fed by the Word of God. That's, that is why we gather together, for sure. That's part of it. But you should also come to be fed and to feed. Whether you're feeding and you're serving through the, the picking up chairs Sunday morning or doing the drapes and the curtains, or whether you're doing that by walking down the hall, expressing love to one another, giving hugs, shaking hands, saying, Brother, I love you. 
We need to come here to give our life and our time and our good for the good of others. That's why we come to church. That's a, sorry, that was a tangent, but, but we must love. And I guarantee, like I said, if you didn't think about this morning, you weren't planning about doing that this morning, right? And you wouldn't have done it had I not said it. And Lord willing, right now you're going, I need to be doing that. So you walk out these doors and then you do it for the next hour and a half, right? And then you continue to do it during the week. But again, if you're not thinking, and if you're not studying this, and if you're not submitting to it, you're definitely not practicing it. I know because that's me. And I imagine that's you. So we must love because he loves us and he is the standard of that love. Uh, here's a, a good book to read, by the way. I was, I was reading this before we were preparing for the college retreat. But there's a, there's a book called Love or Die, Christ's Wake Up Call for the Church. It's by Alexander Strauch, Strauch, I don't know how he's, S-T-R-A-U-C-H. Some of you guys may be familiar with him. He's written a great book on uh, elder leadership and deacons and things like that. It's a great book, but basically he's talking about the church in Revelation, uh, the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, and, uh, and how God, you know, he tosses this church in Ephesus, and he says, hey, they have great doctrine. They can recognize heresy from a mile away. They don't put up with any false doctrine. Um, they're, they're, they're being pure uh, when it comes to immorality. and things. I mean, it's a great church. But he says, this one thing I have against you, that you have forgotten your first love. And, and you would think, you know, especially coming from a church that I think we, we have great doctrine. We, we submit to the word. We hold the inerrancy of scripture and all those sort of things. And it's like, but you're not loving others the way you should. And we would think it's kind of a slap on the hand. It's like, but you need, you know, you need to pray about that and, and get on it, you know, sort of thing. But, but God says, if you don't change this, I'm coming to wipe you out. I mean, it's a big deal in the eyes of God. A lack of love is not just a, a slap on the wrist. A lack of love is, is worthy of, of, of major discipline. You know what I mean? And we have to understand that in our lives. If we are not walking in love, then we are walking in sin. And if we are not walking in love, then we are not walking with Christ. Because Christ is love. That's how he existed. That's what God is. And if he is in us, then that is, has to be what we do. We must love one another. We should be the standard of love on this planet. I mean, if somebody says, you know, what is love? The very first response should be that guy. Do you see the way he lives his life? Her, the way she works, this, this person, the way they conduct their, their family, that's love. We, we ought to be the standard if Christ is working through us. The way we speak should be love. The way we think should be loving. The way we act should just, just, just define love for the rest of the world. Now, not the world's going to recognize that. You know, the eyes of the blind don't necessarily and most of the time don't ever uh, see that and understand it. But we still, that's the way we should live our lives. So... Love is, is, is not only important, it's foundational, it's, it's what we are. So look at, look at 1 John 4, 7 through 8 here. The first thing we have to understand, and the, the, the theology behind it, is that God is love. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. All right, so God is the source of love. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So part of being born again is that you will love. You know, it's just, uh, that's essentially part of it. And this, this goes back to the whole new covenant. God says, I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you not to fall away from me. I will cause you to love others. You know, if, if we are born again, God is the cause of the love that will be within us. And God never fails to do his work. Every good work he begins, right? In first, what is it, Philippians 1.6, he completes until the day of Christ. He will perfect us. That's, that's what he's in the business of doing. Romans 8 talks about that, right? I mean, Christ is interceding in heaven for the saints. Uh, he knows the mind of the spirit that's within us. And the spirit knows Christ and always submits to Christ. So Christ informs the spirit. The spirit prays within us and intercedes within us. And all that is culminating to to do the good will of God. God causes all things to work for good for those who love him or call by his name. 
And then he defines that good. You know, that, that good is not just up to us. That good is that he will transform each of us into the image of Christ. Christ is the firstborn among many brethren that will come after him, which is the rest of us. So if you're in Christ, Christ is always interceding for you. The spirit within you is interceding. And they are causing all of us to become more and more and more like Christ. And that's what God is, is doing in us. That is his plan. That is his will. So if you have the spirit of God, you will love. Because you have to love. Because God will cause that love. And there's no child of God that doesn't love. And that's how John can write this. Beloved, we know that we're children of God because we love. If you do not love, you are not a child of God. Start there. Rather than thinking it's a profession of your faith or something that you have in your heart, here's another tangent, sorry. <laughs> we got to get out of this idea of things in our heart and our head. You know what I mean? If you look at the, the, the just, you know, uh, psychiatry and all those sort of things, when it talks about, uh, the, like the base definition of psychosis, or schizophrenia, that, that, that sort of thing. Psychosis is, is believing something uh, is real when there is no reality to back up that, that belief. And, uh, and so, so to be psychotic is to, to I mean, you, you even have hallucinations and feel like you see things. Uh, one, one of the, the ideas of psychosis is thinking that people are against you. you. There's this conspiracy against you when it actually doesn't exist. But it's all in your head. It's all in your heart. You know, and I think we do that a lot of times. You know, our, our belief in Jesus Christ is personal. It's in my heart and my head. Well, that's, that's crazy. That's psychotic. I mean, James talks about that, right? If, if you have faith, but you don't have works to back it up, that's a useless faith. It's a dead faith. That's no different than believing in Santa Claus, unicorns, or whatever else you want to believe in. So if your faith has no works to back it up, if there is no love that's being manifested because of your faith in Jesus Christ, well, James would say you don't have faith. In Jesus Christ. Or you, your belief in him is no more than just a cognitive, uh, intellectual response. Any more than just, you know, believing that, you know, like I said, leprechauns, Lord of the Rings is real or whatever else. You know, there's conspiracies against you to to ruin your life or whatever else it may be. We got to get out of this psychotic uh, idea of of love. You know, and we'll say that sometimes too. We'll be very angry at someone. We won't speak to them. We won't interact with them, but we're like, but I love them, you know, with a Jesus love. It's like, well, a Jesus love would manifest through reconciliation, conversation, forgiveness, and action, right? And it's the same thing with like, you know, people say, I've forgiven them in my heart. No, you didn't. And well, maybe you did. If you forgave them in your heart, well, then the heart would display through words and actions, right? So if you've forgiven someone in your heart, then your words would display forgiveness. And if you've forgiven someone in your heart, then your actions would display forgiveness, because that's what forgiveness is. There is nothing that happens within us that is not also expressed out of us. So, if you are not expressing with your words or your actions forgiveness, then you have not forgiven in your heart. And we have to understand that. There's not a hidden Christian world within you that, that, that is, is completely different than the actual tangible world outside of you. If it's in here, it will be displayed. If, it's, if you think it's in here and it's not happening in your life, you are psychotic. You are insane. You have an insane faith. So rec- go read James, recognize what it is, and, and repent, and then begin to act on that faith and on that belief. We all have that in us, guys. Daily. We say things that sound loving, or we think things that are loving in our minds, but then we act in ways that are not loving. And the first place we do that is with our spouse and our children, right? Right? I mean, that's the first place. And then we do it with our fellow workers 
and then we do it with fellow students. It's, it's, it's the people we love the most, the people that are around us. And so that's a good place to test. Are you loving others? So, God, I'm, you know, sorry about that. I got off again. But God is love. He says, love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So we know that we know him because we love. The one who does not uh, love does not know God, for God is love. So the, the first point is that God is the essence of love. God defines love. Love is what God is. So if you want to understand love, study God. So, so whatever God is like, that's what love is like. Therefore, we need to imitate his love. And so you go and you look at what God is, study his attributes, study his character, study his nature, and you will get a better understanding of what love is. And then you practice that. You know, we imitate God. That's what Ephesians 5.1 says, right? Imitate God and walk in love as Christ loved you, laying down his life for you. I mean, there it is. That's your command as Christians. And those are both imperatives. Walk in love, imitate God. Um, it, and God has always been love. You know, God's love was not, only, not manifest just because he created. It's not only... Because we exist. In fact, God was loved before we were even a thought, before there was any creation. If you look at John 17, 24, Jesus praying to his Father, we wouldn't know these things. Except for Jesus opened his mouth and said it, had John write it down, and now we can understand part of the, the thought of God. But he says, Father, I desire that they also... Now, this day, at this point in this, in this conversation, is not only referring to 11 disciples that are there with him, but for every future believer that will believe through their words, which is you and me, too. So this is, this is a direct prayer of Christ 2,000 years ago for you and I if you are in the faith. That's neat. I mean, you actually fit into this. It says, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Why? Here's why Jesus desires for us to be in heaven with him. He says, so that they may see my glory that you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Christ desires for you to die and be with him so you can see his glory. So your eyes can be open to the love that God has for the Son and the Son has for God and God has for you. So that you can see the glory of Christ that we are blinded to right now. Because of this present age and because of the sin that exists. There will be a day when we will see his glory. There will be a day when we will see his love. And and not only will we rejoice, but he will rejoice. This is the longing desire for Christ for us to experience His love and His glory. We are love gifts to the Son. Did you know that? I mean, if you look at what the Bible says, a lot of times, here's here's how self-centered our Christianity gets sometimes. We think that we're saved so we can get out of hell. You are saved because God loves His Son. And God gives you to the Son as a love gift because He loves His Son. And the Son takes all of those that were the Father's this is John 17, by the way. And, 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 and the Son makes sure that each of those that are given to Him, all of those that are written in God's book before the foundation of the world, He makes sure that they all believe that He is the Christ. He makes sure that they all receive Him. He makes sure that they all know Him, and He perfects them. Look at Ephesians 5. All of the church, Christ perfects without spot or blemish or any such thing, so that, that she is ready, made ready, perfect and complete. And then the Father And the the Son gives those back to the Father. He perfects the children of God. And then in Revelation 19, the Father gives the perfected bride to the Son. And we have this marriage between the bride and the Lamb. And we're given to the Son, perfect and complete, transformed. We're unified with Christ, one with Christ, married to Christ for all eternity. To be brethren of Christ, to be children of God. And then in the very end, 1 Corinthians 15... 
The Son gives all back to the Father so that the Father will be all in all and He will receive all glory, all praise, all things. You're just part of that. You're a love gift to the Son. You're a way for the Son to express His love to the Father and for the Father to love the Son and then for the Son to give all glory to the Father. And we're wrapped up in that. That's what your salvation is all about. Isn't that crazy? It's all about love. And so we're called then to love others in the way that he loved us, giving up all things, our good, our rights, our best interests for the sake of others and for his glory. And in doing so, he's clothing us in white garments. In doing so, he's preparing us and perfecting us for the day of marriage to the son. And in doing so, we glorify him. Again, I didn't think about that when I got up this morning. Did you? That's why you came to church. And that's what you do when you're gathered together with the body of Christ. You come alongside each other to perfect one another, to edify one another, to point each other towards Christ so that we become more like Christ, so that we glorify Him, so that He can glorify His Father. That's what love is. God is love. God always has been love. He defines love. And, and, and if we want to love, we must imitate Him. He is the essence of love. Secondly, Jesus Christ is love. Look at verse 9 and 10. Verse 19 says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Uh, He says, uh, In this is love, not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, there is so much here. We should spend two weeks on this. Every day for two weeks on this. We just don't have the time. But the point of this is, is, look, God is love. He's the essence of love. And here's how God made that physical, tangible, so that you could see what love is. He sent his only begotten son to the world to die for his enemies, to die for sinners, to die for those who hate him, to die for those who are happily engaged in enmity against him and don't have any desire to come to him and can't know him and can't see him. Because God is love. So first thing, you ought to know that God loves you because just solely on the fact that he sent his son. And this is to be the propitiation for our sins. I mean, the, you know, again, we don't have time to do this, but go read Isaiah 53 and look at what Christ did on the cross for you. The propitiation for your sins, in other words, means he appeased the wrath of God. We deserve God's wrath. We are sinners actively engaged in sin naturally. We want to sin. We have no desire to be with him. We would never find him. And, and, and we're hostile against him. We deserve the full wrath of God for all of eternity, and rightfully so, completely. And, 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 and there's nothing we can do about it, and we don't even want to do anything about it. That is us naturally. But God loved the world, the whole world. And so he sent his son to appease the wrath of his father for all of the children of God. That's love, right? But not only that, there's a whole other aspect of this love. Jesus Christ came and he was God. He's God and he is man. And so he lived a human life like you and me. And he exemplified the love of God perfectly in that life. So that not only do we trust God's love because he sent his son, but we can see God's love in his son. His son was love, is love, is the standard of love. So to understand exactly how to love, you look at exactly how Christ lived. You're a human, I am a human, he is a human, and he lived like this, and he lived the perfect love of God. Consistently giving up his best interest for the interest of others, always laying down his life for the sake of of the brethren, and, and loving even those who hated him to the very end. Even praying on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't even know what they're doing. That's patience, that's gentleness, that's kindness, that's meekness. Christ is the essence of all of those things. And so if we want to know what it looks like to love one another, we must imitate his love. And his love, his standard, is far beyond anything we can ever do in this life. I always tell the, the kids this, in youth group, in college group, or wherever, is 
Christ is always the standard. And you never lower the bar where you can meet that standard and think, okay, I've pleased the Lord. You leave the standard there and you just keep running towards Christ. You will never love like Christ loved. You will never meet that bar. But you keep running to it. And you never assess yourself as if you've made it. And it's not a life of depression. It's a life of, 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 of I can't think of another shun. <laughs> uh, uh, running towards it. <laughs> That's, sorry, I, I'm, I have a very small vocabulary. But anyway, uh, but we just keep running towards the standard and running towards Christ. And we'll talk more about that in a second when we talk about the act of love. But let's move on. I mean, that's a huge point, but we're going to move on and look at John 4, 11 through 14. So if God is love and he's the essence of love, God manifests his love through Jesus Christ, not only showing you his love, but then showing you how that love plays out as a human. Well, then the next question is, or not the next question, but the next, uh, I guess, uh, command is that we love like Christ loved us. And that's what we get at John 14, 11 through 14. And this is the, the act of love. It says, beloved, if God so loved us, if you understand what we just said, and you know, man, God loves me like that, and I don't deserve that, we also ought to love one another. I mean, the answer right there is, is if you're not loving others, get your mind off of yourself, look at Christ, and start over. We have to do that all the time. We don't love because we're focused on us. We don't love because we're worried about what people think about us. So get your mind off of you, focus on Christ, and then just do what you know is right. If God loved us like that, we ought also to love one another. Look at this. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. That's a promise. So if there is God-like love being manifest in us, that's, that's evidence of your salvation. That means that God abides in you. And his love is perfected in us. In other words, that's the work of God. This is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. As, as, you, as you love, you will love. I mean, isn't that funny? We forget this all the time. That, that if, in order to be a patient person, you have to practice patience, right? The way that we become anything is by practice. I mean, again, let's pull it back and look at just a, a, a natural analogy, right? Now, always, baseball is God's gift to mankind. We all know that. So baseball is a good sport analogy. If you read a book about baseball, you've learned something about baseball. You know something about baseball. But have you... Have you learned how to play baseball? Are you able to play baseball? Let me say it that way. If you, if you watch a video on baseball and you study all the swings and all the, the, the defense and the offense of all the greats of history of baseball, you still don't, haven't played baseball, right? You don't have the ability. You might have a lot of knowledge, but if you haven't walked out onto the field, if you haven't put the glove on, if you haven't caught the ball, if you haven't actually hit a ball, well, all the knowledge in the world does not make you a baseball player. It just means you know something about it. To be a good baseball player, you have to practice. And if you practice one time in your life, you'll be that good. If you practice one time a week, you'll be better. If you practice once a day, you'll be better. And if you practice eight hours a day, you'll be very, very good at baseball, right? The way that you get good at baseball is by playing baseball. It doesn't negate the study of baseball. You have to study and understand those things, but then you have to put that study into practice. And it's the same thing with our Christian walk. The way that love is perfected in you is by you loving others. And the only way you're going to love others is being around people that are unlovable. Right? And then you have to practice love in a way that you would not naturally love. I mean, to love those who love you and give you things and you give back to them, that's what the world does. Jesus said that to the Pharisees. If you love people that love you, you're no different than everybody else. Everybody loves people that love them, but to love people that hate you and to love people that are hard to love, to be patient with annoying people, and to, and to strive to lay down your life for someone that would love to take it from you, well, that's like Christ. And if you're practicing that, 
well, then love is being perfected in you. But the only way for love to be perfected in you is for you to practice it and for you to practice it when you don't want to. That's how God changes us. That's when love matters. And, and he's doing that in all of us. I always tell my college kids, you know, I mean, there's, there's people in our life that we just hope get another job. You know what I mean? Or we're like, you know, we're like, maybe they'll find a better church, you know? Or, or you know, it'd be okay if they moved to that state, you know? But, but you know what you got to do? You got to start looking at those people as grace gifts for you. The people that are the most annoying, the hardest to be around, the ones that are just mean and arrogant and, and unforgiving and merciless, those are the people that God has put in your life to expose the things in you that are not like Christ. And you lay down your life for them. And you'll begin, you'll begin to understand what Christ-like love is about. I mean, it's the beginning of it. You know, a lot of times we... we we pray, yeah, I'll really try to love them. If you're trying to love them, you won't love them. You resolve, I will give up my best interest for this person that is just awful. And if you start there, you have begun to repent and begun to practice love. Many of the people that God puts in our life that we wish weren't around are the very people that we need to be around because they expose everything within us that is nothing like our Savior. And it is a perfect place to practice love. So if his spirit abides within us, then he will perfect us in love. And he'll do it through trials and suffering. He'll do it through our, our temptations and through things in our life that are sinful. Like, like I said, I mean, he'll put you in these situations where your sin is exposed and then cause you to see the discrepancy between you and Christ that'll break you, that'll cause you to repent, and then it'll cause you to be like, I must love and now you've begun to practice love. That's how he does it. He uses the evil in this world to produce good in his children. You know that, that verse in Romans 8 that we talked about earlier, that, that, uh, uh, that um, we know that all things work out for good for those who love God they are called according to his purpose. We say that all the time. We usually say that in the middle of a trial. And it is true. I'm not belittling that. But a lot of times we don't forget that that's only talking to the children of God. That's in the context of Christ interceding for us, the Spirit being within us, interceding within us. God's not working all things out for good for all people, Right? I mean, many people, all things are working out for eternal destruction and wrath and pain and punishment and fire and hell. We don't rejoice in that at all. That should grieve our heart and pain us to call, to, call us to go out and to share the gospel with everybody. But you've got to understand that that's for believers. For his children, he will take even the wicked plans of Satan, flip them on their head, and use those things for your good, for your, for your Christ-likeness. That's what he always does. That's why we rejoice in trial. That's what's behind James 1, 2 through 4, right? We rejoice in suffering. We rejoice in trials. It's not that you persevere through trials. You rejoice in it because you understand that that is the love of God, that God is going to use that trial, that suffering, that pain, that persecution to cause you to be more gentle, more patient, more meek, more kind, more loving. It will cause you joy. That's the, the, the hope of Christians. That's what Christians understand. But the only way you get to that place of understanding that and believing it, rejoicing in the midst of the trial. Everybody rejoices on the back end. You, know, you walk through some trial, you get through it, and you look back and you're like, man, I'm glad that didn't work out. You know? I mean, even unbelievers can do that. But the Christian rejoices in the trial because as you are suffering, you understand that he's perfecting you. And you understand that you're dependent upon him. And it causes you to run to him. And so we have to understand that his love is perfected in us, and it's perfected in us through those kinds of things, those hard times, those people, those situations, that suffering. 
Look at verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Praise God. Again, all this is not dependent upon your ability to love, your capacity to love. This is all dependent upon his spirit within you causing you to love. It's a promise that God's given to us. It's a promise for all believers. He puts his spirit within you. And we've seen and testified that God has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So, here's the point. If God is love, he's the source of love, he's the one that gives love, he's the essence of love, he defines love. He sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to be the manifestation of that love, to lay down his life for us, that we don't deserve to pay the wrath of God, to, to take that wrath so that we don't have to endure that wrath, that we can have his inheritance, his holiness, his righteousness. And then, and then he also displays that love, and then he gives us his spirit, like this verse says, well, then we must love. He'll cause us to love, and we must love. And that's the thing with the Christian life. It's always that way, right? Even when it comes to your salvation, God is the one that calls you. If, 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 think about it this way. You know, you got, you got election, predestination, all that sort of stuff, but then you have to have the responsibility of man. If it were not for God, you, you would never have come to him. He's the one that calls you to himself, right? He's the one that convicts you. That's a, the work of the Spirit of God. He's the one that wrote your name in the book of life before the foundation of the world. I mean, that was stuff that happened before you even existed. And then, even in that whole process, when you come to him, he's the one that justifies you, he saves you, and then he sanctifies you, and he holds you. None of those th- and then he glorifies you in the end. It makes you like Christ. And none of those things are in our hands. You would never have come to the Lord apart from him doing that work. You would never stay with him. If you're arrogant enough to think that you would persevere to the end on your own, you're an idiot. None of us would stay with Christ. We would all forsake him. We would have forsaken him out the gate, and we would forsake him the entire way along. And if you think any different, you are wrong. Your assurance is dependent upon him. Your, your, your connection to him is dependent upon him. And praise God, he says he seals us with his spirit, so nothing can separate us from him. And then John 10, right? Jesus says that, that no one can snatch any of his people out of his hand. And then he reassures that by saying, and they're the fathers, and no one can snatch them out of the father's hands. That's that your salvation on God's side. You know what I mean? So praise God. That's why you're saved. But then on our side, we have that responsibility, right? Repent, believe, follow, those sort of things. And so on that side, we're going to talk about love, all right? The act of love. We know that God will cause us to love. We know that that's a work of his spirit. We must love because he is love and he's in us and he will make us love and he will use these things to cause us to love. So now, how does that flesh out? What does that look like? Look at 1 Corinthians 13. Actually, I wanted to look at somewhere else, but I'm looking at the time and I'm like, whoa. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is just a great place to go. And this is, we just need to stay in places like this. Galatians 5 is another good place to go. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. tells us, look, here's, here's it. it is evident that this stuff is not of God, and it gives you a list that you and I do every day. And then it says, and anyone who practices these things will never inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says, but the, those who are Spirit-filled, those who are controlled by the Spirit, those who are uh, uh, um, yeah, controlled by the Spirit will do these things. And it's like love, joy, peace, peace, kindness, all those sort of things. But this is a good definition of love in, in 1 Corinthians 13. And, and he's writing this to a loveless church. A church in Corinth is completely self-focused. They come to church to express their gifts. They come to church to, for themselves. They come to church to be fed. Now, that's 1 Corinthians 13. and they're, 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 it's, a, it's a parasite church. And it's a church. They're born again. He's talking to them as believers. It's not like they're, they're feigned, they have feigned faith. But their church is self-focused. We can't be that way. Ephesians 2 is the warning. 1 Corinthians 13 is the, is, the, is the example. We can't be that way. So, in order not to be that way, or in order to positively, to love others, we must practice these things. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. 
It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice, or I'm sorry, yeah, it does not rejoice in unrighteous, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So that's God's definition. Here, here's what love looks like. So then we need to look at our parenting, our, our, our marriage, uh, the way that we work, uh, the way that tr- we treat our employees, the way that we interact with other people, uh, family, other people in classes and stuff like that. And we need to always examine by this standard, this definition. So love is patient. Being patient is being able to suffer for a long time as people are attacking you or are against you. That's what patience is. It's, it's tolerance, it's forbearance, it's restraint even when you're being wronged. You know, it's not just sitting in traffic and not yelling cuss words, all right? That's not patience. Patience is when people are provoking you, are, are striving against you actively, and you don't fight back, you tolerate it, you bear it, and you rejoice in those times. It's the opposite of vengeance. It's the opposite of a retaliation. It's the opposite of fighting for your rights. We do that all the time, right? We feel personally offended. I'm hurt. This hurt. And because we're hurt, now all of a sudden we have some divine right that overrides the word of God and we can do something to defend ourselves. You and I, we must all, you've got to stop being personally offended. If you are personally offended and you feel like you have the right to fight, that is the opposite of Christ. That is satanic. That is never Christ-like. We do not fight back. We bear up sin. It's hard. I'm not saying this is an easy thing. We tolerate the sins of others. We, we are, we've already talked about it. You know, you're like, oh yeah, the world's going to sin against me, but this is the church. We shouldn't sin against you. That's just, just that's dumb. You, the people in this room will sin against you. Your spouse will sin against you. Your children will sin against you, and you will sin against them. We sin against the people we love the most, right? You know that. We sin against the people we love the most. And that's the practice ground for patience. As your children sin against you, is there going to be some amount of sin where you kick them out, where you cease to love them, where they're no longer your son? That would be the opposite of Christ. When your family does something against you and there's some point where you can cut them off, is that the love of Christ? When someone in this room does something to you and you feel like, well, they shouldn't have done that. They're a Christian. They should love me the way that God loves us. I mean, what in the world makes you think that that's okay? We have to tolerate the sin of one another. We're all going to sin against each other. We have to bear that up. And we do it because we understand, first thing, that we do the same thing to other people. And secondly, we do it forever towards Christ in this life. And he always is patient with us. Love is patient, long-suffering, able to suffer the attacks of others and not fight back. Love is kind. Kindness, I I thought the, the best way I heard kindness described, I thought this was really good. Kindness is love in work clothes. Kindness is, is the action behind that patience, right? You bear up, you bear up, you bear up, you don't fight back, you pray for them, you love them, and then you actually do it. The kindness is where you go and do the action that is the exact opposite of what is being given to you. Kindness is where we are ready and willing, thoughtfully able to do good. And again, you'll never be kind if you're not thinking about how to be kind. You might be nice. People mix up niceness and kindness all the time, right? People come to you and like, hey, good morning, brother. How are you doing? Good, that's great. All glory be to God. And they walk off. That's not kindness necessarily. It can be. 
But that person can turn around as soon as they said it, you'd be like, yeah, whatever. You know, and just like, I think those things in their heart. Kindness is you actively forgetting the sin, or not, you know, not necessarily forgetting like it, you, you, you forgot it happened, but choosing not to act on things that are happening to you, being patient as others sin against you, and then treating them in a way that is not warranted by the way they treated you. That's what Christ does to us, right? He's kind to us all the time. If he treated us according to what we deserve, we, we wouldn't have made it to this room this morning. We would have been hell 30 years ago, right? But he doesn't treat us according to what we deserve. He treats us according to his kindness. And he bestows his kindness on us every day. You are alive right now because of his kindness. Your heart beats because of his kindness. You're able to eat because of his kindness. You had children because of his kindness. You're married because of his kindness. You're not married because of his kindness. You have a job because of his kindness. You know him because of his kindness. It's the kindness of God. And we must be kind to other people. Giving them love and grace and mercy that they don't deserve. He says next, love does not envy. Envy is just a powerful, selfish desire. It's you resenting others when they are blessed, right? It's you seeing other people being blessed and you hating them because they got what you wanted or what you wish was given to you. It's the opposite of rejoicing and thanking God or, thanking, or being thankful uh, that other people are being blessed around us. It's a desire to take from them, right? To take what they have rather than to, to give to them. I mean, that's what envy is all about. It's, it's, a, it's a focus on our desires, our wants, our hopes, our dreams, our success, so much that you get angry and sad and jealous when other people get things that you feel like you deserve or you want. And that's never love. Love is the opposite of that. Love, love is not envious, but love, love rejoices in the good of other people. In fact, you've got to think about it that way. When other people around you are blessed, this person has more money, this has a better job, they got a nicer car, and this person over here is getting praise and accolades that you don't get even though you work twice as hard as they did, again, grace gift from God for you to rejoice in their success, to rejoice in their riches, to rejoice in their blessing on their family, and to thank God that that was his will and his choosing. That's why people around you are blessed in ways that you are not, so that you will give thanks and rejoice in the good of God for your fellow brethren. But, but it's, so, it's natural for us to want that stuff and to be angry at them for getting that stuff. But love does not envy. Love rejoices when others succeed. Love, love goes and gives thanks and, 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 and is, is thankful for them succeeding around you. He says love does not brag. Brag is parading yourself. It's talking about yourself. It's talking about your strength and your success. You know, so, so envy is when you want something they, they have, Right? Bragging is you trying to get people to envy you. It's you going around talking about you all the time so that people will want what you have. You're provoking them to envy when you brag about yourself. Yeah, we we, we got to talk less and less and less about ourselves and ask more and more about others. And you'll stay further and further from bragging. It's so easy to brag. It's so easy to talk about the good that you, you have and your strength and your strength. And it's not to say that you don't give thanks to God and glory to God and those sort of things. But we know, we know when it goes from glory to God to glory to me. You know what I mean? And if you don't have that sensitivity, then just stop talking about yourself completely and gain some sensitivity when it comes to bragging. Talk less about yourself, more about Christ, and more about others. But bragging is parading your achievements, putting yourself on a pedestal so other people will exalt you. They'll think highly of you 
They'll be like, man, you are a hard worker. You're really smart. Gosh, you're, you're one of the most athletic people I've ever met. I mean, you put yourself up there and you talk about those things so that people glorify you. It's trying to make people envy you. It's elevating yourself above others. And we do it for everything. We do it for athletic ability, for academic ability, artistic ability, religious achievement. That's the worst one, right? It's like, oh, I'm so, so tired. Why are you so tired? I woke up at four to pray, and then I was after that. I read the Bible for five hours, and then I shut. You know, it's like, man, stop that. Just get that junk out of your life. If you're doing that sort of stuff, that's great. Keep that between you and God, right? If you're going to pray, go into a closet. Don't let anybody know what you did. If you're going to give, give in, in anonymity. Don't let anybody know what you gave, right? That's how we love the Lord. Don't parade it so that people become envious of you. Love is not arrogant, Again, it's uh, some of these what is not. And the reason I think he defines it by what is not is because that's exactly what the Corinthian church was doing and what you and I are doing, right? I mean, we need to know what is not because this is pretty much what we do. Love is not arrogant. It just means being, uh, actually, it, it literally means being inflated or pumped full of air. So, you know, when we talk about having a big head, I mean, that's what we're talking about. It's having a big ego, dis- displaying your superiority, your importance. Uh, it, again, it's rooted in pride. And it's forgetting to be thankful, humble, grateful, right? You're arrogant because you think there's something in you that, that caused that to happen, right? Again, let's look at whatever ability, academic ability, religious achievement, uh, 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 whatever, whatever it may be. When you become arrogant, you're thinking you did that. You're thinking that for some reason, you were the source of that and you were the power behind that. And what you forget I mean, it's simple. If you just think about simple terms, right? You're super athletic. You're better at, at a sport than anybody else. And tomorrow morning, your heart stops working. Well, your athletic ability is done, you know? Or you get in a car wreck and you, and you lose an arm. I mean, that, you're that fragile. So stop boasting in things that you have no... It's not you. It's a gift given to you, right? Academic ability. I mean, everybody in my family loses their mind in their 60s, except for Momo, and she's 90, and she's losing her mind. You know, it's like, we're, we're, you know, you can lose your mind at any point, right? Again, you can get head trauma, and you, you can't think anymore. Or you get older, and you can't think anymore. And to think that your academic ability is based upon your glory is, is crazy. All that stuff is a gift given to us. But to be arrogant is instead of thanking God, being humble and grateful... We praise ourselves and desire for people to see how great we are. The opposite of being arrogant is, is, is uh, being uh, big-hearted, not big-headed. I heard someone say that there. I thought it was good. You care for others. You don't think highly of yourself. Love is not rude, right? Being rude is just being ill-mannered. It's being inconsiderate. It, it's, it's purposefully being impolite. And sometimes you can do this because you're trying to prove a point. Uh, forget your point. And be kind, right? There's no time ever where it's okay for a Christian to be rude. Now, sometimes we do this just because we're not thinking of others. I think that's honestly the, where our rudeness usually comes from. We're not thinking about how my words affect them, and I'm not thinking about how me being late affects them, and I'm not thinking about how the way I dress affects someone else. Therefore, we are rude in the way that we dress, rude in the way that we speak, rude in the, the, in the, in the actions that we take. And the remedy for that is kind. Be kind. Think of others. Well, if I show up on time, that's, that's kind to this person. Well, if I dress in a modest way, that'll be kind to others, right? If I speak with words that are edifying and uplifting, that's kind. And so it's not about your personality. I mean, I used to say it all the time. I was like, well, I'm just not organized. That's why I'm always late. No, I, I'm not kind. That's why I'm always late. That's, that's the answer. And so to be kind and not to be rude is to change your personality to reflect the personality of Christ. We, but, but again, that's an active thing. Naturally, you will be rude. It is supernatural to be kind. 
So we, we, we need to consider others more than ourselves. Honor them, help them, bless them. Look, you know, and, and I tell the kids this all the time. Look at people in the eye when you're talking to them. Hold doors for people. I mean, simple things, but you're, it's just get your focus off of yourself. And the next one is love is not selfish. And again, I mean, we, we know this. I mean, Christ is the essence of selflessness in Philippians 2, right? We need to, to, to have his character and, and display what he displayed, um, doing nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding one another more important than yourself. So love is not selfish. Your first focus is not you and your well-being and your good, but the good of others. I mean, think about that. Imagine if you went to work and you thought, I am going to work as hard as I can today as hard as I can for as long as I can so that I can glorify God first and foremost and so that I can make my boss more money and that he can, his business will grow and he will be glorified and all the employees around me, I will work so hard that they will be blessed by my presence today here at work. That, that is selfless. Or, or when it comes to your children, rather than every time they sin, being like, why did you sin again? You realize that you're the biggest sinner in the house and you selflessly I mean, you still got to discipline and instruct, but you selflessly use your example, yourself as an example of what not to do, and you love them in the process. I mean, selfishness is desiring everything your way, for everything to be in order the way that you want it to be, and for, for everybody to, to live up to your standards, and you expect them to do what you want them to do so that your life can be better. The opposite of that is to, for you to expend yourself and to work tirelessly and to, to let go of your pride so that everyone around you is blessed, honored, and exalted. And you become more and more insignificant. I think John the Baptist is such a great example of that, right? When Jesus comes along and his disciples come to him, he's like, hey, this guy's baptizing more people than you and all this stuff, and everybody's going to Jesus. And he's like, first thing, he says that, that man can only have what's given to him from heaven. So be, be okay with what you're given. And then he said, he must become more, I must become less. John's desire was to become insignificant, so Christ became more significant. And that's what we need to be. Strive for insignificance in this life. And strive to use the things God's given you to cause other people to see how significant Jesus is. And if you're doing that, you'll be, you'll be practicing selflessness, right? I mean, that, that's hard. That, that works against a lot of us, right? I mean, we, we want people, I mean, don't you see how good of a parent I am? Don't you see my academics? I mean, don't you understand how smart I am? Don't you see the success I've had in business? Don't you see, you know, and man, strive for insignificance. Strive to make your life reflect Christ. You know, I mean, I, that, anyway, I, I can keep going on that one. Love is not provoked. Yeah, this is good, too. Love does, is not provoked. We always think about not provoking others, and that's true. Love does not provoke others. Absolutely, right? You don't want to ever be the cause of someone else's sin. But, but love isn't provoked when people are trying to cause you to sin, right? We're provoked when people are doing stuff that causes us to be angry, to be anxious, to not trust God. That's what provoking is. But love is not provoked. I love how he, he puts it on us here. And, is, and, and, and he shows that, that love is, is not stirred up to anger and aggression and to vengeance and all those things. You're not offended. This is that personal offense stuff. Being personally offended, if, if you're personally offended, you have been provoked, right? You've been provoked now to think that you can act in a way that is unchristlike. Love is not provoked. Love is personally offended. You're going to be offended. That's going to happen. It's going to happen more and more as you live for Christ. But love doesn't take that personal offense and then, and then feel like they have a right to be able to, to do something that's not Christ-like. We're not aggravated. We're not offended and bothered and made angry and exasperated by others. And when we are, we recognize that as being provoked and we know that that's not love. 
And so we reel that back in. We pull that back under the love of God. Love thinks no evil, or love doesn't take an account of wrong suffered. I mean, think about this. It's so easy, right? And again, with the people you love the most, they forget to show up on time. They say some unkind word. They're rude, and you're like, there they go again. That's like 400 times this week. They're always rude. You know, and when we have those things in our mind, listen, guys, if you already have embittered thoughts in your mind, if you keep a record of wrongs, that person will always live up to your standard. Do you not know that? Have you not figured that out by now? If you're angry and bitter at somebody, they can do anything, and it will prove your point. You can be walking down the hall, and they're like, hey, buddy, and you're like, what do you mean, hey, buddy? Are you, are you being sarcastic to me? How can you say that when you haven't, you haven't made up, or you haven't forgiven me? Or you, you know what I mean? We can turn anything into another offense. If you are personally offended and you are in a place of being bitter, in a place of being provoked, everything that person does will be evidence that you are right and they are definitely what you thought they were. So lay that stuff down. Get rid of your lists and love people that provoke you, that offend you. Like we, we said that already. You're going to be offended. So don't, don't think it's weird when it happens. It's normal when it happens. And it's a grace gift for you and for me to, to love, right? Love rejoices in truth. It desires for truth. It desires for what is true to be done. Then it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I love these all things things because, it, it, again, it shows the, the, the extent that our love should go. Always. I mean, that's, that's the extent. It bears all things. How much sin? All sin, right? It, it believes all things. Even when it's just like, I just, it, it's just going to be so hard to believe that, that this is going to happen. You're suspicious. You're cynical. You're just, I just can't believe. Love doesn't do that. It, it just continues to believe. There's going to be a day of reconciliation. There's going to be a day of repentance. There's going to be a day of, of rejoicing. You know what I mean? It believes all things. Not being naive. It doesn't mean you're naive. You understand. You can assess the character of someone else, and you understand they're probably going to lie again. They're probably going to cheat again. They're probably going to hurt you again. But you just keep believing. Man, God's going to save them, and you just keep praying for them, right? It believes all things. It hopes all things. You have an expectation of good. Even when trust is broken, you desire for that to be fixed, you know? You don't just sit there, and you're like just always cynical and always thinking, well, I'll never trust them again. How could they sin against me like that? Because that's how you treat Christ. That's how they could sin against you like that. So forgive them and hope. And then finally, it endures all things. It sustains, it perseveres to the very end. Again, this is all an example of Christ-like love. You bear the unbearable, you believe the unbelievable, and you hope against all hope. I read that somewhere. I didn't write down who wrote it, but I was like, that's a good way to say it, it endures all things, right? You just complete, continue to bear up. Now, if you look at this and you're like, this is impossible, you're right. This is the love of Christ. But it goes back to the very beginning, right? God is love. He's the source of love. If God's in you, he will give you the strength and the power through his spirit to be able to do this. Christ is the manifestation of that love. If you feel like you have reached the end of your love, look at Christ. And immediately, you should be crushed and broken, realizing that he loved you so much more, so you should be able to love more. And then you see his example of love, and you know how to love more. And then the spirit of God's within you to cause you to be able to love like this. So when you can't love, where do you run? To Christ, right? When you feel like you've met the end of your bearing, fall on your face and ask him, help me to bear the sins of others like you bear my sin every single day. When you feel like you've met the end of believing and fall on your face and say, help me to believe and to hope because I've, 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 I'm at the end of my faith here and I don't trust and I am cynical but I know you always 
believe and hope in me. And I watched that as I went from wretched to born again. And when you just can't endure anymore, you fall on your face and you pray. And you say, Father, help me to endure. Help me to display the love that you display to me every single day. This is rooted and grounded in our dependence upon him. And if you are going to be able to love, then you must be a man and a woman of prayer every day. You don't have the strength in yourself to do anything we talked about today. Only Christ can empower you to do this. And, and he, he amply, lavishly supplies you with everything you need to do exactly what he says. And then he puts you in that place. And all he wants is for you to get to that place where you realize you can't and you run to him and then you get back up and you strive to love. Does that make sense? So, like, as soon as I pray, you have another hour, hour and a half to practice that love. Think right now, what am I going to do when I walk out these doors? An hour, yeah, <laughs> to lay down my life and love others here at church. Let's pray.